0: Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Leah Greenberg. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Mark Kaplan about his book, Yiddish Writers in Weimar Berlin, A Fugitive Modernism, which was published by Indiana University Press as part of the German Jewish Culture Series in 2021. Welcome to the podcast, Mark, and thank you so much for joining us. So Mark Kaplan is a native of Louisiana and a graduate of Yale University. In 2003, he earned his Ph.D. in Comparative Literature from NYU. Since then, he has held professional appointments at Indiana University, Johns Hopkins University, Yale, and the University of Wrocław in Poland. He's also had a research fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania, at Harvard University, Universität Konstanz in Germany, the Center for Jewish History in New York, and the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. In 2011, he published the book, How Strange the Change, Language, Temporality, and Narrative Form in Peripheral Modernisms, a Comparison of Yiddish and African Literatures. And this was with Stanford University Press. Today, we'll be discussing Mark's second monograph, and this is on Yiddish modernism in Weimar, Germany. Mark has most recently served as Brownstone Visiting Professor in Jewish Studies at Dartmouth College. This month, he'll be relocating to Düsseldorf in Germany, where he'll be working as part of the Yiddish program at the Heinrich Heine Universität. So before we get to our book today on Yiddish modernism, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to literature and Yiddish literature in particular.
1: The first line of my biography always uh, reminds people that I come from Louisiana, and uh, I think that this is something that really challenges people's perceptions of the people who do Yiddish today. Um, People from Louisiana aren't supposed to be Yiddishists, and Yiddishists are not supposed to be from Louisiana Um, When I was growing up, when I was traveling beyond my hometown, I would introduce myself, people would find out where I am from, and the first response inevitably, and particularly from other Jewish people, was, uh, are there Jews there? Uh, How are there Jews there? Um, What kind of Jews are there? And, uh, the reality is, uh, as Bernard Malamud, uh, uh, said, uh, uh, in one of his short stories, there are Jews everywhere. And, um, I struggled as a young person growing up in a very culturally conscious, maybe hyper-conscious, uh, family, uh, to figure out what it meant to be a Jewish person in the United States in the second half of the 20th century. This was actually something that was really important to me when I was growing up. And one of the ways that I uh, explained this problem to myself was in attaching myself to an identification with New York City. My father would go to New York City for business uh, when I was growing up maybe four or five times a year. And uh, once in a while, maybe once every two years or so, he would bring the whole family. And I would go to New York and I knew that this was a kind of homeland for me uh, and a much more uh, vibrant and identifiable homeland than either staying in Louisiana or, you know, some abstract model of, you know, uh, going to Israel or something like that. And so I knew basically from the time that I was um, 11 or 12 years old that I wanted to be in New York and I wanted to be involved in some kind of literary culture, some kind of uh, politically engaged culture, something that I would come to identify as I grew older and I uh, continued reading uh, 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 with an avant-garde And looking back, maybe 20 or 30 years later, I came to realize that what I was looking for in this identification with uh, an avant-garde, this identification with cultural labor, this identification with New York City, were all synonyms for what Yiddish culture is and what Yiddish culture has been and can be even today. So I went to Yale as an undergraduate feeling very much like a fish out of water for a lot of reasons. Uh, I studied modern literature. I was very engaged in understanding what this problem of the avant-garde is. Uh, And in the last semester of my undergraduate career, I began studying modern Jewish literature. And I came to the subject of modern Jewish literature having studied very intensively African literature, African-American literature, the literature of the Black Atlantic, the Caribbean. And what I found finally reading writers like Shalom Aleichem or Mendel Amoich or Shai Agnon in translation was not only a revelation of what I thought modern Jewish culture should be but also an extraordinary proximity between the experience of Eastern European Jews emerging out of the Austrian and the Russian empires at the end of the 19th century and the decolonial struggle of Africa and the Caribbean and in a, a reconfigured way among African Americans in the second half of the 20th century. So I found an uncanny sense of belonging in the study simultaneously of Yiddish and modern Jewish literature and of African and Black Atlantic uh, literature. In those books, I found more compelling intellectual interlocutors than I did with members of my family or with professors whom I'd studied with uh, 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 in college or with uh, the majority of my friends in real life. Now, this is a very sad admission of a very lonely young man, but that is the spiritual autobiography that has motivated all of my scholarly research.
0: So in that, that last statement you made, I also sort of see... A reflection of, of some of the themes of this book, which is also the idea of finding home in, in literature and the relationship between finding home and literature. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more then about how you came to this particular project and in sort of plotting the coordinates between the authors that you work on, both uh, Eastern European Yiddish literature and Weimar German literature, but also in a larger European literary dialogue. Mm-hmm.
1: The origins of this project date from not long after the birth of my daughter. So this goes back really 17 years now. I was up late one night, as one is with a newborn baby. And while I was sitting with her and nursing her from a bottle, uh, I revisited a movie I had seen as an undergraduate, but had not seen in about 15 years, a movie that I'd always been really, really fond of from the first time I saw it, uh, De Blaue Engel, The Blue Angel, which is uh, the film prim- debut of Marlene Dietrich. It's, in effect, the first German language talkie from about 1930. And I saw it again for the first time in, I guess, about 15 years. And I not only was reminded of how great a movie it is and how much I like it and how spellbinding Marlene Dietrich's uh, screen presence is, but I recalled also in the intervening years between the last time I had seen it as an undergraduate and watching it now at this point in about 2005, that Der Blaue Engel is inspired by an Einrich Mann uh, 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 novel named Professor Unrat, Professor Garbage, uh, which is also one of the subtexts, one of the literary sources for a great and surreal Yiddish novella by Dan Nister and Cheskahanovich called Unterre now, coincidentally, Unter unterploit was the first yiddish narrative that i published on as a graduate student in a peer reviewed academic journal very embarrassed by that article now it's more than 20 years old i you know i i i i i i Blaue Engel to i i Unterreppleut was written in 1929, published in the Soviet Union in Yiddish. Uh, Der Blaue Engel was uh, filmed in Germany by an Austrian filmmaker using American money. Uh, There's no way that either of these artists, whether it was uh, 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 Josef Sternberg or der Nister, no way that they knew about one another. Yet they are each drawn to the same novel by Heinrich Mann. Not even a particularly good novel, if, you, if you're being candid with yourself on a purely aesthetic level. What was the source of this attraction? Why were they attracted to the same book? What are they doing with it? And how are they turning this not terribly good novel into some of the representative works of art for their medium in their time and place? And that got me to thinking of the biographical fact that Danister had been in Germany for about five years, that there were other Yiddish writers also working in Weimar, Germany, even though they were not necessarily seen as German writers. Uh, And I felt like there was a whole book project in that. And once I had finished my first book, which is... uh, very thorough revision of my dissertation on Yiddish and African literature, I began to research this project. And I found not only an incredible aesthetic, political, historical significance to the work of these Yiddish writers in Berlin, but I also felt like one could answer some of the fundamental aesthetic and philosophical and political questions of global or at least European modernism in the interwar era by situating these Yiddish writers in a German context that had not acknowledged them and that they were only grudgingly willing to acknowledge for themselves. So that became the project that I've written about in this book.
0: And also in the start of your book, you mentioned the fact that that Walter Benjamin was uh, another inspiration for for the origins of the project. Uh, and And you talk about Walter Benjamin quite thoroughly in the text. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about how your work with Benjamin influenced this book. And in particular, how you work with this conception of of allegory and the Baroque, for example. Mm -hmm.
1: So this really is, uh, as you observe, the fundamental critical foundation for the uh, work that I do in this project. Uh, It really is the theoretical means by which I connect Yiddish modernism with the culture of Weimar Berlin. And of course, Benjamin is not only a commentator, uh, he's also a participant in that modernist culture uh, uh, in Weimar Germany. So it was a way for Weimar aesthetics to critique itself, as it were. I think that the moment when I realized how fundamental uh, 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 Benjamin would be to my project was when I was reading through for the second time, because for the first time, you know, you just, you don't understand anything uh, that he's talking about, or at least I didn't. But the second time I was reading through his study of the Tchauspiel, the Baroque tragic drama or the Baroque play of mourning. Uh, There's a line in that book. I think in the English translation, it's found on page 178, at least in the old translation it is, where Benjamin says that allegories are in the world of images, what ruins are in the world of objects. This is a very loose paraphrase. It's not a direct quote, but there was something so extraordinarily illuminating about that comparison, about that analogy that really seemed to express what it is that each of my uh, 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 Yiddish writers are trying to dramatize about their own historical and political predicament. These are all witnesses to a great catastrophe befalling Eastern European Jewish civilization. They are each witnesses. To a fundamental and definitive end of the primacy of Eastern European culture to the experience of Yiddish speakers globally. They are all uh, now testifying to the double diaspora of the Yiddish condition. So, they are recording what it means to live among, to live with, to reconstruct in memory the ruins of their own civilization. And I understood in that parallel, in that juxtaposition, that the literature that these three writers are uh, are, are composing... Constructing is a fundamentally and intrinsically allegorical literature. So, that the categories of allegory that Benjamin discusses specifically in his work on the German Play of Mourning, on the Baroque Trauerspiel, are the most effective means of explaining the
0: odd aesthetics
1: of those writers who are writing in Yiddish in Berlin in the 1920s.
0: And regarding this sort of double diaspora, I think that's a, a very beautifully put um, phrase for, for the, the condition of Yiddish culture and literature. So your first the first section of your book deals with um, issues of, of nation, and this is a framework of identification. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about how authors like Dublin and Bergelsen orient themselves respectively towards their eastern european and german jewish counterparts
1: so yeah the first part of the book is a comparison of david Bergelsen with alfred Dublin, and as you've noted walter benjamin appears from time to time as a uh, 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 an explanatory um spirit guide uh And each of the sections of the book engage in a juxtaposition of a Yiddish writer who was in Berlin during the 1920s with uh, a German language counterpart or a series of German language counterparts. So the first part of the book is devoted to Bergelson, the Yiddish writer, and Alfred Dublín. And the coincidence that is fundamental to this section, which is not replicated anywhere else in the book, is the fact that Dublin and Bergelsen kind of sort of knew one another. They were friendly, they would see each other at cafes, they corresponded a little bit. It's known that uh, Dublin read Bergelsen in German translation. And for a while, for a very brief period in the early 1920s, Dublin even made an effort, admittedly half-hearted, but an effort at learning a little bit of the Yiddish language. So Dublin was actually technically born in a part of Prussia that becomes Poland after World War I. And the idea of rethinking himself on some level as an Ostjude, as an Eastern European Jew. Becomes a real challenge for Dublin's own creativity. It's a very interesting moment in a career that was spent making a series of cultural identifications. And to a certain extent, I think Berg- Bergelson was uh, uh, a resource to, to Dublin for understanding his own connections to Eastern Europe. Now, Dublin makes a trip through the Republic of Poland in uh, 1923, 1924, he comes away from the experience not better able to identify with his own Jewishness or his own origins in Eastern Europe, but more estranged both from Jewishness as a cultural entity and from the idea of nationhood or national belonging. He really returns from Poland a kind of um, utopian anarchist. We don't need nations. We don't need religions. We don't need anything. We need a series of uh, uh, illuminations to our own modernity. And uh, he dedicates the book that he writes about his experiences in Poland, to the destruction of nations, the destruction of borders, the destruction of divisions between people. At the same time as he's writing this um, compellingly dystopian travel log, Bergelsen is trying to rethink what has happened to his own Eastern European uh, origins. Uh with the emergence of the Soviet Union. So Bergelson begins writing a novel with a remarkably, notably, significantly Kabbalistic title, Midas Hadin, the aspect of divine judgment. Midas Hadin is now not dedicated to God, the judge of all of our souls, a concept that comes from the Uh, Liturgy of the Day of Atonement of Yom Kippur, but it's the Soviet Union that possesses this this quality of Midas Hadin, of divine judgment, what is socialism and what is not, what may live and what must die. That's the dramatic significance of the title of Bergelson's novel. So I construct a comparison between Dublin's travelogue, Reise in Poland, a Journey to Poland, and uh, uh, Bergelson's Midas Hadin, which has been translated into English as Judgment. And the first most fundamental idea in this juxtaposition is the fact that Dublin and Bergelson are writing at opposite sides of a border that had not existed 10 years earlier. That the distinction between a Russian Jew, and a Polish Jew, which prior to 1917 was completely imaginary, now has become a matter of life and death. So a series of paradoxes emerges out of this uh, comparison. Bergelson originally thinks of the title of his novel, Midas Hadin, ironically, but by the end of his writing process, a series of uh, shifts in his political affiliations, his ideological orientation, leads him to embrace the idea that the Soviet Union actually can provide a uh, dire, a uh, strict, a severe, but a possible and viable future for Jewish life. Dublin comes to Poland expecting some kind of great awakening, some kind of great homecoming, and he recoils from it. So the question of this comparison becomes how does Dublin in Poland come to shrink from identifying with Jewish nationhood, with nationhood as such, while Bergelson, the displaced Soviet uh, uh, subject comes to identify with the Soviet Union and see in their drastic measures a means of hope for the Jewish community of the 1920s. It's a very interesting, highly counterintuitive reading of what Eastern Europe signifies for people living in Berlin and what Jewishness signifies for a Yiddish writer versus what we would call an assimilated German-Jewish writer.
0: Yeah, and I was wondering if you could tell, tell us also a bit more about how the respective uh, literary perspectives, the Yiddish and the German perspective, help contribute to these different approaches to um, grappling with with nation and with new borders that had, had only emerged in the last few years. So, for example, you you take a look at Uh, Yiddish literature and point out the lack of sort of bellatristic production in the 17th and 18th centuries. Mm -hmm. So Yiddish literature didn't undergo the same literary developments um, that some of its other constituents had. So how does this then affect the avant-garde writers that you look at and some of the latent aesthetic influences that you found um, in their work?
1: So one of the fundamental theoretical claims that I make in my book is to look at a concept of cultural belatedness. Uh, as I note, I'm not the first scholar to note this. I'm, you know, this has been a, a commonplace of Yiddish literary history really for about 100 years. There is no new bellatristic production in Yiddish during the 17th and most of the 18th century. There's plenty of publishing. There's plenty of writing. There's a very interesting literature to be studied that has been studied about 17th and 18th century literary production. But this literary production falls into two two primary categories. And there's secondary categories that need to be acknowledged as well. But in terms of primary literary production, we have either adaptations or republishings, anthologies of stories that come from Talmud or from Midrash or from global folk tales, uh, uh, repackagings of earlier Yiddish texts or uh, paraphrases from Hebrew texts. We have some smaller subgenres that are not exactly bellatristic in the modern sense of the word. That are very culturally significant to Eastern European Ashkenazic Yiddish culture, such as the composition of prayers in Yiddish, many of them for women. We have some local uh, uh, chronicle poems that commemorate uh, catastrophes in the uh, Jewish community. We have the unique Uh, uh, effervescence of folk theater in the Plurumspiel, these are important genres and I don't want to minimize them, but they are not bellatristic in the sense that we would identify uh, the growth of the novel in English and French literature, the growth of the verse drama or the philosophical drama in German literature. Uh, or uh, the growth of comedy and opera and Italian culture. So when Yiddish culture begins to produce new narratives at the beginning of the 19th century, particularly in uh, 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 the, the new genre that emerges at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, of the Hasidic story, I identify a very significant commonality between the Hasidic story, specifically the Hasidic stories of Reb Nachman of Breslov, with the Baroque fairy tale. So what we see, in other words, is that Yiddish aesthetics in the 150 years where there was no bellatristic production, when Yiddish literature thaws out and resumes its cultural productivity, it maintains a proximity with Baroque storytelling modes at a moment that is directly and immediately proximate to the growth of German romanticism. So that juxtaposing the Hasidic story with romantic German culture at the same time offers us an opportunity to understand how German Romanticism, in particular the German adaptation of the British Gothic, is comparable to the Baroque aesthetics of the mid and late 17th century. By the time we get to Yiddish literature at the end of the 19th century, beginning to adapt romantic literary forms and the work of you know, writers like, uh, uh, like uh, uh, Y.L. Peretz or um, H.D. Nomberg, we see that their neo-romanticism is proximate to French, German, and Russian symbolism by the time that Yiddish writers are writing in symbolist forms, their aesthetic is proximate to expressionism and surrealism. So this belatedness becomes a means of constructing an ongoing anti-mimetic avant-garde aesthetic that runs parallel to the development of what I'm describing as a hegemonical Uh, mode of um, realist verisimilitude. We understand that each of these atomized uh, eruptions of avant-garde experimentation, the Baroque, the Gothic, the uh, uh, Symbolist, the Expressionist, the Surrealist, are all part of an ongoing descent from realist mimesis. And that contiguity or that continuity of experimentation is really illuminated best by understanding the belatedness of Yiddish literature and how it becomes anticipatory of contemporaneous co-territorial avant-garde cultures.
0: And sort of in, in tracing this um, this belatedness, you also bring together very interesting combinations of texts. You've already mentioned how you discussed Dublin and Bergelson together, that they may have read each other. Um, but, you know, you also bring together Etia Hoffmann um, in your discussion of Yiddish literature. And you, you, as you mentioned before, talk about der Blaue Engel and Unter der Plot. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about your process in pairing these texts together and and sort of plotting the different coordinates of, of Yiddish and, and g- German language authors at the time.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking specifically of the second part of the book, um, the first part of the book is de- devoted primarily to David Bergelson. The second part is devoted to Danister, And Danister, as I'd mentioned before, really was at the origins of this project as a thought before it became an actual uh, manuscript or a published book. And Danister is, one can certainly argue, the most difficult, the most idiosyncratic of the Yiddish prose writers ever. Um, And yet part of his ethos as a writer is predicated on adaptation. And from the beginning of my engagement with his writing, and this goes back 20 years now, uh, my first published article on Yiddish literature, um, that article that I said embarrasses me so much, I recognize that adaptation is fundamental to uh, Danister's aesthetic his writing process for a couple of reasons. one, Historically, Yiddish literature has always been uh, a mediated literature. It has always been a literature that juxtaposes itself uh, simultaneously to the Hebrew tradition and uh, uh, the co-territorial languages and cultures that surround it. So there's always a mediation in Yiddish literature between Hebrew, rabbinic thought, rabbinic culture, the Talmud, the Kabbalah, Uh, the Midrash, and German language, uh, Polish language, Russian language, Ukrainian language, uh, 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 Baltic language, uh, literary cultures. This is what Yiddish is. This is how Yiddish functions. And Danister is very sensitive to that. He extends that line of development. At the same time, there's a kind of modernist pessimism that motivates Danister, in some of the same ways that it motivates uh, 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 perhaps someone like T.S. Eliot, there is this conviction that the great cultural monuments have all, they all belong to the past, they've all been written before, that all we can do is reassemble fragments. This is also, uh, if we want to think about, you know, someone who's maybe a little bit more uh, relatable than T.S. Eliot, this is also very much Walter Benjamin's uh, 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 governing con- conviction as a writer, a thinker, and a critic. So adaptation, what Dennister is adapting and how is really fundamental to understanding these surreal, bizarre, infinitely fascinating uh, 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 narratives that he constructs. So there was a sense that um, just taking this novella unter der Ploit and understanding its relationship to Heinrich Mann, understanding its uh, uh, relationship to E.T.A. Hoffmann's uh, uh, Die Elixiere des Teufels, The Devil's Elixirs, uh, and understanding its profound aesthetic and emotional and conceptual debts to Hasidic storytelling. If I could just chart these series of adaptations that Danister is making of German late late Romanticism, Proto-Modernism, of the German Gothic, of the Hasidic story, this in itself would unlock the great mysteries of Danister's storytelling uh, uh, techniques. So that's exactly what the second part of the book uh, aspires to do.
0: And I wanted now to zoom out a bit to to what is our most significant setting, which is Berlin and Weimar Berlin in particular, which has sort of an iconic status in historical and, and literary research as a place of decadence and of permissiveness. And you also mentioned that the city is a place where where new technologies are incorporated into society and where popular culture takes hold in new forms. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about what are the the dark sides of Weimar Berlin and how does the city operate as a key site for shaping the aesthetic of these Yiddish writers?
1: So, of course, when one refers to the dark side of Weimar Berlin, one is... um, referring to the most enticing aspect of life in uh, this enormous metropolis, um, to cite the name of a very famous film that I also discussed briefly in my work. Um, Berlin, in the immediate aftermath of World War I, experienced an extraordinary and essentially catastrophic population explosion. Uh, The population of Berlin 100 years ago was roughly a million people larger than it is today. Uh, This is an astonishing thought to contemplate. Uh, It was uh, mired in urban poverty. Homelessness was a chronic and graphic problem. Of course, very famously, we recall the period of Currency, hyperinflation, that era from about 1920 until 1924, when uh, uh, a loaf of bread could cost um, 900 million marks in the morning and could uh, cost uh, a a half a trillion marks by the end of the day. Uh, People using uh, 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 wheelbarrows full of uh, worthless currency to uh, buy a pack of cigarettes, these kinds of uh, famous stories. Life had to be very difficult for anyone uh, forced to spend a half a trillion marks for a loaf of bread. Uh, Life was so much more difficult for those people who didn't have access to a half a trillion marks. Um, And this is something that everybody is aware of. Everyone is uh, commenting on constantly. Additionally, there is the psychic trauma of having lost the First World War. There is the infinite reminder of Germany's loss uh, in the form of countless mentally damaged, physically crippled veterans roaming the streets of Berlin, Berlin in particular, but really any urban setting in Germany at that time. So Berlin, like Eastern Europe for the Yiddish writers, is a very haunted place and not haunted in some good kind of way. You know, it is a very difficult place to live. It is a very dirty, ugly, unstable, frightening place to live. And so on the one hand, Yiddish writers are arriving in Berlin because it's the first place of refuge, because it is so much more stable than the borderlands between Poland and the Soviet Union that are Locked in civil war until the early 1920s. On the other hand, it's really just one step above what they had fled. And uh, this experience of a Berlin exceeding its limits, a Berlin straining its physical resources, and a Berlin very much revising its city plan, it's cityscape, it's, its, 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 its urban aesthetic, um, inevitably manifests itself for the Yiddish writers that I'm uh, uh, analyzing, that I'm discussing, that I'm trying to figure out. Um, these processes manifest themselves for the Yiddish writers as a process of internalized aesthetic revision. Uh, the homelessness of the Yiddish imagination does not find refuge in Berlin. It finds resonance with the homelessness of the German imagination. And that's really what I would characterize as maybe the symbiosis of Yiddish language and German language culture in the Weimar moment.
0: And you, you draw attention to the idea of of loss and mourning permeating the city. And that's something that maybe to sort of bring us towards the the third part of the book, you address with authors like Josef Roth and Moshe Kuhlbach. So I was wondering if you could also expand on how these two authors grapple with issues of, of loss and of nostalgia in this context.
1: The uh, chapters on Kohlbach and Roth are actually uh, some of the earliest uh, uh, parts of the book that I wrote, even though it appears at the, at the, at the end of the book. I wrote these chapters really uh, at the beginning of my research process, around 2009, 2010, 2011. Um, and they struck me as a very effortless, very natural juxtaposition uh, Roth, in several ways, is the most Eastern European of the German uh, novelists of the era. He was from very easternmost Galicia. He was from the town of or Brody. Um, he came to Berlin by way of Vienna. And for much of the 20s, he aspired to be and really succeeded in becoming the perfect German uh, gentleman intellectual journalist. He was one of the most successful German language journalists of the 1920s. And a variety of political and personal uh, uh, events coincide at the end of the 1920s that really cause him to rethink his own dedication to urban urbanity uh, for, for 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 one of an expression and uh, identification with German culture, and he really begins to rethink fundamentally uh, his own origins with Eastern Europe. One of the ways we can uh, 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 identify Rots' re-embracing of his Eastern European uh, 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 origins is as a reaction to Alfred Dublin. He saw Alfred Dublin's travel writing on Poland. Uh, he he read what uh, Alfred Dublín was saying about Jewish culture, and he recoiled from it, and he was determined to write his own response to this best-selling author's uh, a very negative uh, uh, view, his very negative uh, inability to identify with Jewish culture. And Roth says, by way of contrast, no, uh, uh, not only can one uh, uh, identify with Eastern European Jewish culture, but Eastern European Jewish culture can provide a model for our own humanity as global citizens. And uh, uh, the first fictional manifestation of this is uh, uh, his novel, *Job*, his novel about the book of Job, uh, where he describes a subject of the czarist pale of settlement coming to New York City and experiencing all the tribulations of uh, of the biblical Job, and ultimately the same kind of almost Hollywood ending that the book of Job itself uh, features, this, this grand, nearly impossible uh, uh, reconciliation with his past and his family. And uh, this migration of an Russian Jew, a Jew from the Tsarist Pale of Settlement to New York, really I think parallels Roth's own migration, not from the Russian Pale of Settlement, but from Austrian Galicia to Berlin. So that the New York that Roth describes in Hiob, in the Job novel, really is an allegorical stand-in for the Berlin that Roth worked in and got away from as often as he possibly could. Um, And I think that the clues to deciphering how New York functions as an allegorical substitution for Berlin can be found in other writings Roth made, his journalistic writings about Jewish culture, where it's very clear that uh, 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 for him... Berlin was supposed to be the golden land, the promised land that so many Russian Jewish emigrants had seen in uh, the United States and in New York. So everything that Roth says negatively about the United States serves as an indictment of Germany at the end of the Weimar Republic. And I think that this is a very important way of reading Roth specifically and reading America in the Weimar German imagination generally. Now, Roth's novel struck me as remarkably similar to Kulbach's first works of prose in Yiddish. Kulbach arrives in Berlin really the same year that Roth does, 1920. Uh, He was 24 years old at the time, And he was already one of the most important and talented lyric poets in the Yiddish language. He was already publishing internationally some really innovative and remarkable lyric poetry uh, uh, prior to his arrival in Berlin. But Berlin, where he lived for about four years under very, very impoverished circumstances, was... um, in a sense, his graduate school, and in a sense, it was the equivalent, we could say, of maybe Jimi Hendrix moving to England, you know, of finding his aesthetic resources in a foreign uh, uh, community and becoming who he would be as a mature adult artist. And like Jimi Hendrix, unfortunately, Kulbach died very young. Uh, um, But uh, Kulbach, begins experimenting beyond the limits of lyric poetry. He begins writing uh, mock epic poetry, he begins writing uh, drama, and he begins writing in prose. And one of the most remarkable works of his entire career uh, is a almost undefinable uh, 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 narrative called Mashiach Ben Ephraim. The proto-Messiah of the house of Joseph. Now, this requires a little bit of a uh, digression into the Messianic politics of the Jewish tradition. There are two Messiahs. There is a proto-Messiah of the house of Joseph, and then there is the final redemptive uh, Messiah of the house of David. We're familiar with the Messiah of the house of David, both from the Jewish understanding of Messianism and the very different understanding of uh, uh, Christian Messianism. But there's a, there's, a, uh, there's a prequel to the Davidian Messiah, and that's the Josephian Messiah, the Messiah of the house of Ephraim. The Messiah of the house of David is associated with God's everlasting mercy. The Messiah of the House of Ephraim is associated with God's capacity for infinite judgment, which brings us back to the language of Bergelson's novel about the Soviet Union. The Mashiach ben Ephraim, the Messiah of the House of Ephraim, is the Messiah of deen, of strict judgment. The Messiah of the House of David is. The Messiah of Infinite Mercy. So again, we see a commentary on the predicament of Eastern European Jews in the immediate aftermath of World War I, cloaked in the Kabbalistic language of messianic judgment. This is very interesting, to me at least, quite interesting. Uh, but to understand what Kulbach is doing, with these relentlessly obscure and difficult Kabbalistic concepts. Dramatizing them in grotesquely uh, expressionistic, tragicomic terms uh, really requires the same series of allegorical substitutions as understanding what Joseph Roth is doing with the Job narrative. So there seems to be, on the one hand, a real aesthetic proximity between Roth reading the book of Job and Kolbach reading, by way of uh, Hasidic storytelling, the Kabbalistic doctrines of judgment and apocalypse. On the other hand, observe, if you will, how universally apprehendable and available the book of Job is for a German language readership versus the obscure difficulty of identifying Kabbalistic concepts of mess- Messianic judgment are for Kuhlbach writing in Yiddish. And you get a sense of how profoundly different the concept of Jewish textuality is for uh, both um, Yiddish. Literature and German literature, respectively.
0: And you've pointed also to the the wide applicability of these particular um, spiritual references, and and with the difficulties of Jewish textuality. And and as we draw our interview to, to toward a close, I wanted to also talk to you a bit about how um, these works and your analysis of them help you to think about the more pressing questions of nationalism and of community and of belonging and exclusion um, that we can raise about contemporary culture. And in particular, uh, in the past couple of very challenging years, uh, and since the publication of this book, I was wondering how your thoughts on this this topic have have developed and and what lessons we can also draw from your work on, on Weimar literature moving forward.
1: When I began researching and writing this project about a decade ago, I conceived of it primarily as historical and I imagined that I was recovering some very unjustly neglected, some very difficult, some uh, uh, lamentably obscure works of Yiddish modernism. And I saw my work as being recuperative, historicist, archival, and hopefully theoretical. As my research progressed, in particular over the past five years, I came to understand how drastically, harrowingly contemporary my research actually was. It was really only around the year of 2017. It was really only with the inauguration of the former president, that I began to understand what I was writing about was refugees. That the status of the refugee is the fundamental determining concept uh, through which my research could be understood, either through which I could understand my re- my research or through which any uh, uh, any other reader could. This is a book about refugees and the culture that they create, salvaging from the memories, the rituals, the discourses that they were able to bring with them because they were unable to bring anything of uh, material durability with them. Uh, This is a global predicament now. We live as we did 100 years ago in an era of refugee, in an era of salvage ethnography in an era of the reinvestment in memory and in history through the lens of allegory. So this became fundamental to the way that I was able to complete this project. I am talking about the Weimar era. I am talking about Yiddish and German-Jewish culture. But I'm talking about now. I'm talking about 2022. I'm talking about 2021. I'm talking about what we're experiencing in America, in Europe, uh, in Israel. I'm talking about the ways in which cultural production substitutes for political work among people who lack political representation in the public square. And This is, I think, the most urgent problem for global society in 2022, as it had been the most urgent problem for Jewish culture in 1922. So, this is how my work is dedicated, not just to the Weimar era in Germany, but really dedicated to the global present and to my own hopes for the future. And the way that this manifests itself in the book itself was a fundamental act of revision that I undertook uh, right after I had originally published uh, submitted it for publication. And without going into um, unpleasant or boring details, I had originally uh, submitted this manuscript to a, a, a publisher that... Uh, I was unable to work with uh, 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 ultimately because uh, they said the book was too long, the book was too difficult, the book had to be revised in ways that I was unable to uh, 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 work with them toward a happy solution. This happens in publishing. But when I was finally able to work with Indiana University publishers, and they were great, by the way, absolute uh, full credit and great satisfaction in having worked with them. I revised the conclusion of the book. Originally, the conclusion of the book was a very long discussion of Arnold Schoenberg's opera Moses and Aaron. I retain about eight or nine pages of that original conclusion, uh, but most of that work uh, found its way into a separate article. But I rewrote the conclusion as it's published today to talk about contemporary works that engage in the same kind of allegorical imagination as the Yiddish writers of the Weimar uh, uh, era? Where do we find the aesthetics of Bergelson, the aesthetics of Danister, the aesthetics of Moishe Kuhlbach, or of Alfred Dublin and uh, Josef von Sternberg and uh, 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 Josef Roth today in our lifetime? And I found the artists that really illuminated what I was trying to talk about. And throughout the book, I try to make whenever I can references to contemporary art in the same way that, you know, I just compared Moshe Kohlbach with Jimi Hendrix, not exactly contemporary, but more contemporary than uh, the Weimar era. The artists whom I found resonating with what I was trying to talk about for Weimar culture, include people like the performance artist Laurie Anderson, the playwright Tony Kushner, and ultimately, most surprisingly, but most redemptively, I hope, the work of uh, children's films, such as Wall-E, which was made in 2008, or Coco, that was made uh, in 2017, or the science fiction film uh, 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 Black Panther, these works also indicate two fundamental lessons, two fundamental aesthetic lessons. One lesson is that what had been the province of the avant-garde, the most difficult, the most esoteric, Yiddish writers of the 1920s, what had been the province in the 1990s and the early 21st century of uh, 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 a self-identified avant-garde among uh, performance artists like Laurie Anderson or playwrights like Tony Kushner, has now become the common currency of the culture in which we live globally. We are again in an era of postmodernism, an era of allegory, an era of in which allegorical representation not only becomes the means of deciphering our predicaments, but also of imagining an alternative to them. And what I recognize in that juxtaposition is the ultimate conceptual lesson that I discovered while writing this book, and that I hope to impart to at least careful readers of this work. The reason why I return so insistently in my work to Walter Benjamin's writing on the Baroque is because the Baroque as a proto-modern aesthetic offers a key for our understanding of our own post-modern sensibility and dispensation. When we understand that the proto is an act of becoming and the post is, as it were, an act of transition, we recognize that our post-modernity is the proto of some new historical, political, and aesthetic manifestation that we don't yet have a name for. And when you can't name something, as we are unable to name ourselves in 2022, when you lack a name to designate the thing that defines you, you resort to allegory as an explanatory model, an explanatory strategy, and an explanatory aesthetic.
0: And I think you've you've summarized very well the sense of urgency that I think applies to literary and cultural studies more generally, and um, I want to thank you so much for your time and for uh, sharing with us about your book and the process um, of, of writing it and and bring attention to these understudied authors. But before I let you go, I also wanted to ask you about what projects you're looking forward to, what projects you're in the midst of.
1: Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for this, this, this great conversation. And, and I hope that readers of my work will see some of the points that I've tried to stress uh, in our discussion today and that you were so kind to observe in your reading of my work. Uh, for the immediate future, my next project is again devoted to this juxtaposition of the proto with the post. And I'm looking specifically at a small group of dramas that were written at the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century at a linguistic borderline between Yiddish and German. So procedurally, or we could say maybe uh, uh, in disciplinary terms, I remain fixed on the border between Yiddish and German, but the historical context has shifted by about 130 years. Uh, At the very end of the 18th century, the 1790s, extending to about the year 1830, there were a series of plays written by self-identified enlightened Jews. They're mostly farces. Uh, Probably the predominant theatrical model for them is Moliere's Tartuffe. And they are uh, devoted to a juxtaposition between the dangers of internal Jewish fanaticism, which they identify with the new, radical, very modern phenomenon of Hasidism, and the dangers of a non-Jewish libertinism, which they identify with the emergence in German language culture of the Jewish woman's literary salon. So we have this phenomenon. There are salons where Jewish women are interacting with and socializing with non-Jewish men. And we have a male Jewish culture that is increasingly dominated by this new extreme of uh in the eyes of these Jewish enlighteners, a kind of sanctimonious, uh, 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 hypocritical piety, this uh, religious fanaticism. So how can we, as self-identified Jewish enlighteners, as the writers whom I'm studying, how can we create a Jewish modernity in the midst of, in between these extremes of libertinism and fanaticism? We find that the libertine and the fanatic become mirrors of one another in these dramas. We find also that the definitions of enlightenment that these self-appointed Jewish enlighteners have embraced are filled with contradictions. So what I mean to analyze in the work that I'm doing, and I'm really hoping that maybe the first couple of chapters of this book will be um, will be finished this time next year. But uh, uh, what we find in these uh, uh, dramas are really the contradictions, ideologically, linguistically, and aesthetically, of Jewish modernity, not just at the uh, end of the 18th century, but maybe the end of the 20th, the beginning of the 21st century as well. That's what I'm writing about right now.
0: Well, I'm certainly biased and very interested in the subject as I, I worked with some of these plays in my dissertation, and I'm really looking forward to reading your your book on it. Then, um, so thank you so much for your your time and for for joining us today. And I look forward to to talking to you soon.
1: Thank you so much. I hope that maybe next time I can interview you about your research as well. <laughs> I hope so. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye bye.